Hi everyone, Pamela Log here, your host of the Energy Transitions podcast. If you enjoy listening to our bi-weekly podcast, make sure to hit the subscribe button and take a moment to leave a rating or review wherever you're listening. This will help us spread the message and connect with our community. Thanks again for listening to the Energy Transitions podcast from Inlet and Friends. Decarbonizing heating is a complex topic, but certainly requires a great deal of attention in our efforts to be more energy efficient. There are several technologies making an impact in the space, like geothermal and nuclear CHP, heat pumps, harnessing waste industrial heat, and the use of synthetic gas. However, it's critical to view these potential champions of efficiency with a systems perspective. To shed some light on how to accurately measure the efficiency of these systems and the solutions we are deploying to decarbonize heating, I'm joined by Dr. Andre Jensch, Program Manager for the IEA Technology Collaboration Program on District Heating and Cooling. I'm Pamela Log, and this is the Energy Transitions Podcast. Andre, what a pleasure to have you talking with us today. Can you start by giving us an update in terms of where we are in progressing towards these decarbonization goals within the heating space? Yes, uh, thank you for having me here and for this invitation. Concerning your question, uh, unfortunately, we are not on track uh, towards reaching the decarbonization goals in the heating sector so far. In some technologies, it's, we fail by factor 10 or even 100. So it's actually, uh, while it feels like there's a lot of movement going on and, and we're getting ahead, which we do, unfortunately, the system is so huge that the changes we do uh, are not significant enough yet. So from my perspective, there would be a much larger effort required to reach the decarbonization goals in the heating sector. Andre, what is holding us back and what, in your opinion, are some of the key technologies that you believe hold the most promise for reaching our decarbonization goals, specifically within heating? In Europe, we have uh, a very heterogeneous uh, picture. Some countries are far uh, ahead, uh, Scandinavian countries. They have lots of district heating, lots of heat pumps, lots of green energy. They essentially work on this for over 30 years now, in parts on the transition uh, for different reasons. Um, but in general, they are very advanced. Uh, what heating technologies is concerned, obviously cold climates, heating is very, very important there. However, um, other countries are yeah, trailing behind. Um, Germany is somewhere in the middle of middle of the field, uh, I feel. So we have some district heating, we have some transition going on. Currently, our government is also trying to push the transition, which is good. But as I said, likely even this is not going to be enough. So we need even more. Other countries, then we have a very, yeah, a very interesting situation concerning the power carbon footprint in Europe. Uh, There are maps where you can see that, for example, 
France has a rather low one due to the nuclear power used there, while Germany, in spite of all its windmills and uh, some solar generators, still doesn't live up to their standards. So it's a bit diverse, and uh, that means also the solutions kind of need to be diverse. So where electricity is green and easily green, uh, obviously electrification uh, with uh, heat pumps or large heat pumps in district heating networks uh, is a sensible approach uh, where it's hard to electrify everything because uh, we shouldn't forget we also need to electrify industry and traffic. There other solutions might be more important such as deep geothermal, uh, solar thermal, waste heat use, etc. And uh, there, uh, a very good message is that, for example, um, we have in the geothermal sector true innovations coming up. And Germany, we say, uh, I'm pressing the thumbs. That means like I'm wishing them good luck because they kind of invented a type of geothermal energy that could work everywhere independent of the ground structure, which means uh, that we can harness the heat of the earth, which is really huge. Uh, I read somewhere that 99% uh, of the planet are above 1000 degrees and we are talking with heating with something else. I mean, that's the one big source. We essentially sit on a ball of fire. Problem is to get there. <laughs> and uh, this company is trying to do this. Uh, uh, they're called Ever in Germany. They're trying to do their first commercial plant. Two uh, research plants are already successfully finished. They have got some um, venture capital invested and get good guarantees from the German government so and also subsidies so everybody's trying to move this technology ahead and the big advantage also is that um, should this work even if it's only half as good as they promise that would still be a huge game changer because the whole uh, drilling industry from the fossil fuels I mean they could remain they would just drill for heat instead for oil. And uh, all the technology, all the people, all the knowledge is still relevant in this case. So I think this would be a, indeed a very big game changer. Uh, also solar thermal fields together with agriculture, uh, protecting, for example, crops could be a very interesting uh, way forward. Um, obviously we get more extreme weather situations in the future, uh, or at least it's likely so providing some shade to the plants on the open field is helpful and collecting energy in the same process. Yeah, so it's a good idea. Also, and we often forget that um, using all the waste heat that we still have, I mean, the heat is there, it gets thrown away. We just have to collect it. It's even easier to, uh, to get to that heat than to geothermal because you don't have to drill. You just go to the factory, to the waste heat incineration plant, collect the waste heat and, um, well, some argue uh, that waste heat is not renewable. It's very good for the climate to burn it instead of create methane on the landfill, which then is much more damaging to the climate than the CO2 that the um, waste emits. So I think there are some solutions uh, that are centralized and obviously heat pumps, everybody talks about them, are also a big part of the solution. Yeah. These are the things that I currently can see uh, very clearly. Uh, so we have uh, waste heat, deep geothermal, solar thermal, and heat pumps driven with 
electricity that is very low carbon, ideally renewable. Uh, these are the four big technologies that I currently can see that bring us ahead in this term. If I can, pardon the pun, drill down into some of these, uh, and let, <laughs> let's talk geothermal for a moment. It seems we are starting to really get to grips with using the resources at our disposal. How do we speed up the process of using the heat beneath our feet? I think it's mainly a matter of will. Humanity has achieved great things. In my view, without commitment and the willingness to sacrifice at least some comforts, we're not getting there. I mean, it doesn't mean we have to sacrifice them forever. Don't get me wrong. So we can have everything once the world is renewable, right? But until then, we have to kind of go on a diet for a while, right? It's like a, like a um, person that's not so healthy that goes on a diet and for a while kind of sacrifices his joy and then starts eating healthy and can again enjoy life without uh, felt constraints. And, and we can do that. So, uh, but we really require global unity on that also because it's a global problem. We can't put other problems to the forefront until this is solved because it will affect likely everyone uh, to a very big degree. And um, I think there are many problems humanity has and is in the process of solving or improving. And we can keep on doing that and we can keep on trying to figure out our conflicts, etc., in what way ever. But if we don't solve the, the climate crisis, that we will be forced to react very likely in the future. And that is not a position where I see humans to be very good in. They're, they're rather good at having a big vision and say, let's, let's do this together and everybody relate to, to one cause. And maybe that helps us also to bridge the gaps that we have between cultures. Interesting perspectives indeed. And I think, you know, if, if we're looking at human will, you know, I, I read an article recently about uh, how people feel about heat pumps and there's some resistance there, uh, you know, that's, that's causing a delay in the rollout of heat pumps. And interestingly, even when it comes to harnessing heat, for example, industrial heat, there has been some resistance. Are we seeing a change in that behavior? Are people starting to to come to realize that actually we need all solutions? Let's let's get in there. Yeah, that's a very good question. And I would like to say yes. But unfortunately, in Germany, we have the contrary experience. There was the idea by the government to kind of make key pumps mandatory. And there was a big, uh, what's called lash back or something. Uh, so many social players didn't like that idea and how it was done. And I agree that there were some flaws in that law. Also, uh, heat pumps are always considered renewable, but uh, if you're in a country like Germany, we have lots of coal power. And now with the Ukraine crisis, coal power has even, well, didn't really increase, but our coal power plants who have been shut down, some of them have been switched on again. So heat pumps, are only making real sense if you can ensure that the green electricity is there to drive them in addition to the green electricity that you have anyway. And that requires like a system thinking. So a heat pump by itself, yes, it's the most efficient uh, electrical heat generator. That's why we have it in our fridges. 
or in the air conditioning units. But if the electricity is not green and generated with huge amounts of losses, such as in combustion power plants, it's not necessarily such a big advantage over what we're trying to displace. It might be an advantage, but it doesn't have to be. So if I think of Poland, for example, they have lots of coal still in their mix, as far as I know. Uh, probably they should wait with their heat pump rollout, maybe 10 years for the technology to mature, prepare everything, prepare the grid, prepare the electricity production. And once they have uh, a good electricity mix that really makes a difference, then roll it out in a big way after the preparation. Because in the end, the climate is not, or nature in general, is not something you can negotiate with. There are laws and they're like not human laws. You can't change them. So if there is a law behind climate change, and that means, for example, that these greenhouse gases warm us up and that we have a certain total budget allowed, then we must make sure that everything is measured by how much or how little it contributes to that. And all these ideologies, what technology is green or not, have constantly to be checked versus this goal. Because it's not about renewable, green, blue, whatever color. It's about not emitting greenhouse gases. That doesn't even mean not only carbon. Hydrogen is also a greenhouse gas. Let's not forget that. So big hydrogen vents, also not a good idea. Big methane vents, not a good idea. Big pollution with uh, nitrous oxide, not a good idea. So uh, it's a really complex problem. And I understand why the world is challenged by this problem so uh, in such an unprecedented way, because we never had such a problem. I, I think uh, the problem that humanity has, we're kind of addicted to a lot of energy, to fossil energy, to uh, not greenhouse gas neutral energy. And uh, like any addict, what does what stops his addiction? Insight? <laughs> well, in some cases, if it's a very smart, a very disciplined addict with a strong will, yes, he can do it. He can find out, okay, and, and he needs a cause, like, for example, uh, his spouse says alcohol or me, and he loves his spouse, and then he drops the alcohol and goes to the uh, rehab and, and, and sticks with it. Um, but for humanity, it's, it's challenging. I mean, the comforts of fossil fuels are many. Uh, they helped uh, to bring the world a huge leap ahead, so far from being something evil, they're essentially the foundation of our prosperity nowadays. But um, yeah, how to get rid of something you essentially love and needed for a long time. I feel like we need to do an episode dedicated to fossil fuel rehab for humanity. <laughs> what a great analogy, Andre. Uh, I just want to pivot back slightly to some of the technology trends and innovations that you're seeing. Obviously, we touched briefly on geothermal and harnessing waste heat. Talk to me a little bit about for example, cogeneration, perhaps at nuclear, CHP, uh, synth synthetic mm -hmm. gas, uh, and perhaps even fuel cells. Are, are you seeing an impact with some of these new technologies? Yeah, uh, thank you for asking. Yes, indeed, it's a very important part of the mix, I think. We will use combustible fuels 
And uh, as long as at least some countries have nuclear power plants, they will produce huge amounts of waste heat. So not using that is essentially, it's immoral. That would, that would be a climate sin, so to say, because uh, you have to replace it with something else. And either you take renewables, which is okay if you just look at that point, but then you take them away from something else. We don't have enough renewables. So anything that uses renewables at the, now that could be replaced with something else, for example, heat from the ground, heat, waste heat from nuclear power plants, or uh, even combustion power plants. For example, the heat from a natural gas power plant can already save 50% of the emissions compared to the gas boiler. 50%, that's our 2030 target. So essentially what we have to do in the first step is simply switch all boilers to CHP units efficient CHP units producing electricity in times of electricity demand when, for example, winds are blowing and sun is not shining, store the heat and use it when we need the heat. So um, I see a big role of CHP and CHP is really, I think, one of the uh, hidden champions of this transition because without CHP, we use the very high value of fuels very ineffectively. Um, just to illustrate, uh, I mean, normally we look at energy, but energy is only half of the two key aspects of thermodynamics. The second one is entropy or so, like the quality of energy, you can say. And uh, while we're surrounded by energy, which you see by our uh, surrounding not being minus 270 degrees like the cosmos, so we're surrounded by energy, we can't use it for heating because it's there is no difference. So essentially, there is a quality in energy that is different from that that surrounds us. And if you consider this energy quality in the efficiency assessment, gas boilers have an incredible efficiency of about 3%. Three. So it's really that bad. I mean, 3%, we waste 97% of the potential that was there. I mean, there's no perfect system. So we usually waste around 40%. Yeah, so in, in power generation or something, we can, simply because of how physics works and that nothing ever is perfect in the thermodynamic sense. But 3% is really bad. Electric boilers with fossil fuels are even worse. They're 1%. Hydrogen boilers are also worse because of the losses from the electrolysis. They're like 2.8. So these technologies are really inefficient. And inefficient sounds like, oh, we can cope with that after we solve climate change. No, we cannot because any inefficiency leads to a indirect demand for more energy somewhere else. And since we build renewables as fast as we can, where does this more energy come from? It can only be fossil fuels, conventional power generation, conventional heat generation. Therefore, we have lots, uh, even if we use renewables inefficiently, we will put a pressure on the system to create indirect emissions that can outweigh the benefit of the, re, uh, of the replacement we did in the first place. So just imagine hydrogen boiler versus uh, replaces gas boiler. Sounds good in the first step. But if it uses, let's say, four times as many windmills as a heat pump would use, so we cannot have four heat pumps because we have this one hydrogen boiler, Maybe we should have stuck with that one gas boiler and built three heat pumps. Might have been a better idea. So 
it's really a whole system perspective uh, required. And that means always there is no externalizations on this planet. We have this one planet, we have one climate, one atmosphere, and there's no nothing where we can uh, kind of move things to, uh, move our ways to. So, so CHP is a, is a big part of the solution, especially if it replaces boilers, because we can contribute greatly to emission reductions right now with a proven technology. And we have all the providers still there. Thank you for that, Andre. Very interesting how you describe the importance of systems thinking. And as you said, there is no perfect system when it comes to uh, efficiency. However, in order to improve efficiency, you obviously need to be able to measure effectively and assess the functioning of that system. And again, in preparation, when we were discussing some of the points for this podcast, you spoke about how you spoke about some of the strategies that you're employing to to enhance measurements and also the impact of digitalization and and how that data is really working to improve these systems and ultimately uh, enhance our decarbonization efforts talk to me a little bit about that if you will Mm -hmm. yeah thank you for this very interesting question yeah um during my uh years of work like 15 years in this sector, I noticed one very interesting thing about uh, how engineers work. So the practical engineers that build things that can fall apart and where you exactly know who's responsible for that thing falling apart, they are all very good. They're or comparably good. They're as good as possible because the person responsible is obviously very interested in doing a good job. Otherwise, he gets in trouble. Unfortunately, this is not the same for systems where a clear responsibility is not assigned, nor something can break if it's done wrong. And these are all systems that essentially happen on paper. So all this data, uh, all this transformation of data, all this uh, even laws, right? So all these things that you cannot see in the first place where, where it's not one person responsible or a company is responsible. All these things are unfortunately uh, very prone to being wrong without anybody noticing. And we have this in um, carbon. So greenwashing is a big word. And that's exactly for this reason, because you can essentially claim you're green and who's to say you're not until he's done the calculations in a way that essentially proved that. But how do you prove something that essentially depends on the correct modeling of the environment, which is very complex? So during my work, I found that, for example, this negligence of the energy quality aspect that people are not looking at, so that power is much more valuable than than heat, let's say, at 30 degrees, right? You you can't do much with a cup of tea that's at 30 degrees Celsius, but you can do a lot with the same amount of energy uh, from a power outlet, you can charge your mobile phone. You can't charge your mobile phone with a cup of water yet, at least. <laughs> and if you consider this aspect too, so the, the energy quality, um, that means the product of energy and energy quality being exergy, also a um, quite known concept in thermodynamics. And this exergy essentially is, I always try to describe it. It's If you look at energy as the coins that you have, and the energy quality of as the value of these coins, then exergy is essentially money. 
So that's what we're really dealing in. We're not dealing in coins. You give me one coin, I give you one coin, and, and then it's a fair trade. No, if you give me a $5 coin and I give you a 10 cents coin, it's not a fair trade. And uh, some of these aspects are already uh, considered, but not all of them. So what I was trying to do is work at the system that allows um, thorough and quite realistic, uh, quick uh, assessment of various technologies so that we know which pathway, which system is likely the most efficient. And um, that requires looking at the data very thoroughly because also some of the data, for example, in lifecycle databases is not suitable for that. There are some, let's say, issues with it. Then um, if you have this approach, if you have a methodology that allows you to comprehensively look at the whole energy system, including all losses. So you're not just looking at how much do I lose at my front door? How much does the heat network lose? How much does the power plant lose? But you look at the whole chain. So how much of the resources that I, so the, the exergy of the resources that I take from the ground, from the environment, how much of that do I lose to fulfill my demand? So that's because that's the only thing that matters to the environment. What's happening to the environment? It doesn't happen. Uh, it doesn't matter where it happens. It's the global environment after all. And if you know that, so what is the essentially resource exergy footprint of my demand? How much resource exergy do I uh, consume, for example, for uh, my thermal comfort? Then I can compare that. Then I can compare all systems across the bench, new systems, old systems, all of them. And it's independent of being renewable, not renewable, fossil, nuclear, whatever. So it's really quite universal. And um, I was quite happy this year that, that I managed to finally write down how it's calculated because I was using it for 12 years uh, quite successfully in many research projects about writing it down so everybody can apply it. Took quite a lot of time, AGFW, my uh, um, employer uh, here helped me to finally get this done. And now essentially we have uh, a calculation guideline for this methodology and we can use it, for example, to vet all the calculations that we do with other methods. Because I'm not saying it's like the perfect method, you can't do errors there. Uh, obviously you can't do, can do errors everywhere where it's invisible, but um, a good way to get to solid analytical systems um, is to calculate the same thing by two different methodologies that claim to do a similar thing, right? So, so from two sides, you approach the same goal. And if the outcome is the same, you likely don't have an error. If the outcome is different, which is often the case, then you have to talk very deeply about the assumptions, what's more realistic, why is there a difference between the two analyses of the same problem? Uh, and by looking at such two um, analyses at the same time for one system, you get a much higher degree of quality of your outcomes. And that is very important because um, the main key for making changes is right at the beginning when you choose the way which you want to go. Good example, for a while, uh, a while ago in Germany, people thought, ah, we know combustion, so now we have 
we have the idea so that biogas is, is obviously green, right? It's renewable. So let's burn that and uh, then we solve our problems. Well, no, that was not the solution because after a while, first they didn't check, is there enough biomass available to, to, um, to do everything that biomass has to do anyway, plus supply our energy demands? There it's not. So then that, that could have stopped it. But once they calculated it, then they found out step by step that there are lots of emissions. And now it's, um, I mean, while biogas is obviously uh, a part of the solution where uh, we use residues, where we avoid methane emissions by using it, et cetera, there, there it's very good. Uh, all these bioenergies where we avoid methane emissions with using the bioenergy in a combustion plant is always a good idea. But uh, chopping down whole forests, uh, taking away arable land that would be used for food, uh, food or even nature just to generate energy, that's not very helpful. And people could have known that. And the analysis was partially there, but people didn't believe. Uh, and there's essentially nobody uh, responsible. And we have a similar situation with uh, palm oil for combustion. Whole uh, islands uh, were essentially deforested just for the sake of generating energy that is even more climate damaging to the climate than the fossil fuels it was meant to replace. So that's absurd. So um, in the end, I think the data, the data needs to be sound. The analysis needs to be sound and proven and quality checked like a car. You wouldn't go into a car that somebody says, yeah, it's going to run. It's not going to explode. But wait, what, what is this? What are these wires? Ah, don't worry. Don't worry. Just drive. Nobody would do that. It's, it's, it's suicide. And it's essentially in an information age. I think it's also a bit suicide to use data that is not very thoroughly vetted. I mean, we see fake news every day. Who says that the analysis that you're just reading that says, oh, there's no climate change. Uh, that's not simply fake news. There are parties interested in uh, not changing anything for good or bad reasons. Can't judge, but uh, yeah, this information is out there and it's wrong. So we have to be very careful there because if we start going the wrong way and invest millions in the wrong way, we lose that time for being on the right track. Thank you, Andre, for, for highlighting that and for sharing your time. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. It was a great pleasure to talk to you. And I'd like to thank our listeners for joining us today as well. Uh, please note that all reports referred to in this recording will be included with links below. Take care. Until next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this Energy Transitions podcast brought to you by Enlit and Friends. Visit enlit.world for more episodes. See you next time.